Welcome to Creative City, the podcast that lets you listen in on my conversations with some of Cincinnati's most innovative and creative minds. For more information and to listen to previous episodes, please visit www.creativecitypodcast.com. Sign up for the newsletter for the latest updates and be sure to listen, rate, and review on iTunes. Now let's get to it. Welcome back to the Creative City Podcast. I know it's been a minute, but I'm still Tamia Stinson from thestylesample.com and now of tethercincinnati.com. And I know it's been a while, but today I have a special guest. I am back with Joy Sears, who's the creative director of Free People International and also who established The Green Store, which is here at People's Liberty for another about two weeks? One week. One week. This is July 23rd. Okay. Next Saturday. Next Sunday is the last day. Okay. So, Joy, I actually met you here at People's Liberty. You got a project grant to do The Green Store. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about what that project is? Sure. The Green Store is a sustainable pop-up store um, featuring eco-fashion, and organic lifestyle products. You know, I'm very much into the the fashion and lifestyle stuff, so I've been spending quite some time at the green store. (laughs) I bought a crop top, even though... Yeah, I I haven't seen it yet. It's for the best. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been eating a lot of cheese lately, so probably not the best. (laughs) I shouldn't have bought that darn crop top. No, I just... (laughs) This is the deal with crop tops. I always made a I made a promise to myself to not wear them unless I'm wearing them with something high waisted. High waisted. So yeah. I don't, I don't do belly buttons. I'm past belly button. Okay. Age. <laughs> <laughs> what age is too old for right belly now? Belly buttons. <laughs> <laughs> whatever I am at this moment. Okay. <laughs> I sure it looks so cute though. Yeah. So I've really been enjoying the green store. You've been doing a lot of programming. Tell me a little bit about. Um, sort of the philosophy behind some of the workshops and programming stuff that you've been doing there. Sure. So I wanted to do a little bit more than just a place where people come and buy stuff. I wanted to play, be a place where you could come and learn about sustainability, if you, even if you've never heard of it before. Um, so I kind of, in my mind, split the space up into three areas. So there's a shopping area, there's a chill area, and then Which there's I have awesome. done. Yes. <laughs> and happily so. That's exactly what it's for. And then also a space for education. So for people to come in, ask questions about sustainable fashion. Why is it important? Why are these products better than other products? And what are some of the simple, easy, quick tips and tools that I can take and apply to my life? You know, now that you said that, one of the things that I've been wondering about lately, um, because you had some friends in town, mm-hmm. and one of your friends managed to fit all of her trash for, what was it, a year, a year and, and a half, and a half mm-hmm. into a mason jar, yes. which is amazing to me, because I personally generate more trash than any one person should, and I'm always <laughs> trying to figure out, A, why am I so dirty, <laughs> and B, how do I kind of break this down so that I'm not having to take out the trash twice a sure. week. That doesn't make sense. I'm only yeah. one person. Yeah. So if there is something that relative newbies like me yes, can do, what of would course. be your like, top three tips? Yeah, I think the, the, um, the easiest, most accessible way to kind of make baby steps towards zero waste is to think about plastic and how much plastic waste you're using. So if we were to line up all of the plastic that we produce and throw away 
in a year, it would circle the circumference of the earth four times. Mm, and it is, <laughs> it's a lot of plastic waste. And plastic also takes 500 years to 1,000 years to decompose, which means that every piece of plastic that's ever been created still, still exists. exists. Exactly. And so it's going into our oceans, it's going into our um, rivers and our streams, it's killing our little animals. How long has plastic even been around at this point? That's a good question. I don't know. I know it's a fairly new it's human invention. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. So um, I think the easiest way to uh, try to be zero waste, and of course I'm far from perfect, Um <laughs> To think about single-use plastic. So that's your water bottle. If you buy a water, drink a water bottle, go to the gas station and get a water bottle of water for a dollar. Instead, just um, find a reusable bottle that you really like. I found an old-school kind of copper-looking one that makes me feel happy. It's kind of cute. And I just carry that around with me instead. And it also, not only is it better for the planet, but it's also better for our wallets because we're not spending dollars and dollars and dollars buying bottles of water um another thing would be plastic straws if you think about how many straws we use america alone uses 500 million straws a day never even thought about that but now i'm thinking back to those weekends at the The bar bar. the bar Mm -hmm. is the biggest culprit (laughs) um And to kind of visualize how many straws that would be, if you were to take 125 school buses, like the big yellow school buses, and fill them up with straws, 125 of them, that's how many straws we're using every day. And again, every day. Every day, yes. Oh, that's a lot. Just America. Yeah. So instead, like at the green store, I have reusable straws. So you can take your little reusable straw around with you, put it in your bag. So when you go to the bar, you can just ask, um, can you please make my drink without a straw? And sometimes they listen and sometimes they look at <laughs> a little crazy. Uh, but it's just kind of thinking about where will this end up? Right. Um, and things like, although plastic bottles are recyclable, like plastic cups that we get, um, you know, just go the to the market. Cups? The red cups, any kind of cups. In Cincinnati, those aren't recyclable. So anything that we're just planning to use once and throw away, just Mm. think about how can I um, either reuse this item over and over and over and over again, Mm -hmm. or can I switch to something that's more long-lasting than just this little piece of plastic I'll use for a few minutes and then it ends up in the trash. So that would be, for me, like the easiest way to think about it. And I think that... Um, the fact that recycling bins are bigger than trash bins can motivate us to just think about if I just recycle oh, yeah. more huh. than I throw away, then I'm, you know, I'm doing my part a little bit. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but yeah, they usually are bigger. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like a lot of that is being prepared. Prepared. Yeah, so having mm-hmm. your yes, reusable exactly. straw on you, having yes. your water bottle on you, so making sure that you are kind of thinking ahead. Yes, yeah. And it can be, so my friend Christine, who is zero waste or as close to zero waste as you can get, that's an extreme case. It's kind of intimidating for most people when you look at her little jar and think like, how am I going to get there? It's also inspiring, though. It is. I remember thinking, okay, if she can fit that... Zara tag mm-hmm. and other like the few other yes. things that you really don't have control over yes. into one little jar. Then mm-hmm. I've got to be able to fit it yeah. down to one trash. <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. 
But I asked her, you know, does it take a lot of mental energy because we're busy people? I can't think about, oh, I, got, I forgot my straw and my, you know. Yeah, my brain is max so, capacity. You know, yeah, so I think what she was able to do is kind of um, make it, turn it into a habit. So every time you leave the house, I have my reusable um, food container, my bottle, my straw, and my utensils, and just yeah. leave it in your bag. So that way you okay. don't have to think about it and uh-huh. prepare so much. It's like phone um, keys, wallet, like yes. I always say PKW. Exactly. house to make sure I have all that. So mm-hmm. just including that PKWR, mm-hmm. recyclable goods or yeah. something. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I know you only have a little bit of time left in the green store, but you mm-hmm. have a background in doing a whole bunch of other stuff. You had some friends in from town. And y'all were talking about Amsterdam yeah. and New York and all kinds <laughs> of other places. So tell me a little bit, like, yeah. take, take me through the timeline. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I, so I'm from Cincinnati. I was born and raised in Cincinnati. People from Cincinnati always ask you what school you went to. Mm-hmm. And here that means high school, which mm-hmm. I never really got used to. It's a little weird. To, it is a little weird. <laughs> like, also, we're just stuck there. <laughs> yeah. Um, I went to Walnut Hills High School. Um, my whole family went to Walnut Hills High School. Um, I started as a dancer, as a ballet dancer. Um, I studied at the Cincinnati Ballet, but over the summers, I would travel to New York and study with Alvin Ailey in the Dance Theater of Harlem. Oh, I've always loved Ailey. So, yeah, me too. I just knew I was going to be a ballerina. Mm-hmm. Um my parents would drop me off probably starting from 14, 15 years old up in New York and just say, go to classes. And I fell in love with New York. Um, was there like a dance camp? Are you yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, summer programs okay. at um, Alvin Ailey and the Dance Theater of Harlem. So I did that maybe for four or five years. Uh, but the teachers back here in Cincinnati kind of told me, I would I would never have the body of a dancer. I would never be a successful ballerina, uh-huh. which really broke my heart at Obviously. the time. Um, but at the same time, I was like, well, I can spend more time with my friends, and I don't have to go to ballet <laughs> class every day. But I so first I I uh, went to college at a school called Point Park in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. and I did musical theater dance. So I did theater for a while, and I was a dancer, and I wanted to be on Broadway. That was the dream. So I did that for about a year, and I was like, "Ah, I'm not the greatest singer, actually. (laughs) (laughs) This is going to be painful for everyone that has to listen. Um, So I went, I auditioned for a school in New York City, and I was accepted into the BFA acting program. Oh, wow. And so they said, no, you're not the greatest musical theater performer, but you're a really amazing actor. So um, I pursued a BFA in acting. And then towards the end of my college career, there was always this burning, like, I need to do more. I need to give more to the world. I need to add more. I need to, uh, I don't want to, like be a waiter in New York. Nothing wrong with waiters, but... Of course not. Um, you wanted to contribute. Yeah, I, I need to be contributing something. Um, so I found a program at NYU, New York University, uh, called the Gallatin School of Individualized Study. And it was, you can study whatever you want. You can take classes at any of the schools at NYU and make your own master's degree program. Oh, I like it. So oh, I it was did, a master's program? Yes, master's. Wow, mm-hmm. okay. And I did something called 
arts and social change. So I'm, I'm excited about the arts, but I, I'm also excited about changing the world. So how can I put those two things together? So I did that. I started a nonprofit called Theater for the Free People. <laughs> and we um, did like social activist theater. I studied a technique called Theater of the Oppressed. Um, I went to Brazil and studied with uh, its creator. His name's Augusto Bawal. He created it in the 70s back in Brazil as a form of like revolutionary theater. Like getting the audience active. Um, it's very therapeutic. It's very um, kind of pulling back the layers on our socialization of as humans and how we oppress each other and how we become oppressed, how we oppress ourselves. Oh, was this usually public theater? Like, were you doing it? Yeah, in public. public so um, it's, it's also done in prisons, in mental hospitals, oh, okay. um, with kids in the favelas of Brazil, mm-hmm. um, impoverished neighborhoods, anyone. And I've also taught classes at NYU. I mean, he says we're all oppressed in some way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Um, <laughs> He's, he's passed on, he passed on many years ago, but I was really happy to be able to study with him before he passed, and I still work with the company a bit. But still, there was this kind of pulling, like, okay, yeah, arts arts are great, but are, are they really changing the world? They change our minds. Which is the first step. Which is the first step, yes. But I still felt like, okay, what else can I do to make an even bigger impact? So I started to explore um, social innovation and social entrepreneurship. So how can we use business and creative ideas, still creativity, but more of inventive creativity as opposed to expressive creativity. Okay. So expressive creativity is I'm a poet, I, and I am. I do spoken word, I dance, I like photography. I like using art to share what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling. Inventive creativity is more of how can I use my creativity to solve a problem? Right. So that was what inspired me to create Free People International, um, another step along the process, which is a creative organization geared towards solving social problems. Um, so I lived in New York, graduated from NYU. I decided to take a postgrad course in Amsterdam. Um, and traveled all around. My goal was 30 cities outside the U.S. by my 30th birthday. Okay. So I was going everywhere. I spent time in Brazil. I spent time in Ghana, um, Haiti, all throughout Europe. Now, what were you doing in all these places? Were you Usually studying? Usually doing or? programs. Okay. Like doing something, like volunteering in Haiti. Um, or in Haiti, I was filming a documentary uh, film. I was shadowing some doctors and med students from Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. So they were going on a medical missionary trip there. So I was just taking photos and video for them. In Ghana, I created a girls empowerment program. So I was doing theater of the oppressed with girls there. In Brazil, I was doing theater of the oppressed. And um, ended up in Amsterdam after after I went to Africa. I... um, got malaria while I was in Africa and I was really really sick but I started this blog and my family and everyone was following like oh I've never traveled I've never been to Africa I'm following you along and it would be just like hilarious like random like oh it's hot you know (laughs) (laughs) 
Surprise. Surprise. Hot take. Like a black girl in, in Africa. Like, what is this? I'm supposed to eat this? And, you know. So it's kind of funny and people are following along. And Does so, this still exist, by the way? This blog? I have to find it. What was it called, Joy? I have to think about it. Mm-hmm. But I used, I was doing it so much, I used like $2,000 worth of data. I don't oh know. Oh my gosh. Yes. So oh. it was a pretty expensive okay. blog. Um, but people wrote me and said, oh, I can't wait to get to Paris. I can't wait to get to Amsterdam. So even though I was sick, I still went on. And by the time I got to Amsterdam, I just like fell in love with it. Mm. So anytime I was able to get back, cut to um, after graduating from NYU, I was taking a post-grad course in Amsterdam called Black Europe, which was all about the history of the transatlantic slave trade Mm -hmm. and how I ask a lot of people, most, well, yeah, are there black people in Europe? Yes, there are. (laughs) So it was all about how they get there, where they come from. Um, And I decided randomly to perform at a festival called the Ketty Cody Festival, which is cutting of chains um, and slavery in Suriname, which uh, was Mm -hmm. occupied by the Dutch for a long time. And I just decided I wanted to perform this poem. Um, In English? In English. It was uh, a poem about my rights by a black um, activist writer named June Jordan. And um, I was studying... I learned it in at NYU and performed it um, as a part of some coursework I was doing. I was like, I feel inspired. Yeah, I'm just yeah. going to get on stage. And I actually wrote one of my best friends from New York and said, you need to be in Amsterdam on July 1st so we can perform. And he came with no money. He came with his little <laughs> djembe drum. And we did the, I performed. Uh-huh. And, but something told me like this would change the course of my life forever, this performance. Even before you did it? Even before I did it. So I was like, no matter what, I'm going to do it. You need to be here. And after I got off stage, I was approached by two artists who produced their um, Surinamese. um, And they just kind of like looked at me and they're like, "Um, well, I forgot a little piece of the story. Sorry if I'm going on too long. Mm -hmm. But so I was living in the dorm at, in Amsterdam when I was studying and um, one night I heard a little like scurry across the floor uh-uh. of my dorm room. Uh-huh. So I turn on the lights and I see a little mouse, you know, and little cute how little loud mouse. Did you scream? <laughs> well at first I just was in shock. Like I lived in New York. I'm used to seeing yeah. mice, yeah. but never in, in my, my personal, personal space. space exactly. Mm-hmm. So I jumped out out of bed and I ran and he ran out of the room. Um, but then he comes back again across the floor. He's very bold. <laughs> and so I jump out of bed again and shoo him off again. Two minutes later, he comes back again underneath the door, across the floor, and up the side of no, my no, no. See, now bed and far. across my pillow. No, 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 no. Yes. no. <laughs> Who is this? I was very me. bold. I've nicknamed him Fate. That's a nickname I gave him <laughs> okay. because he made me take all of my belongings uh-huh. and exit the dorm uh-huh. and never come back. Immediately. Immediately. Mm-hmm. So the next day was the performance. <laughs> so that was like the key. So I'm homeless oh and I'm, perf- I'm like, but still, still I need to perform. 
So when the artists approached me and they asked me who I was and where I, you know, where I come from and what I was doing, I just start crying uncontrollably. Oh, oh, my name is Joy <laughs> and I'm from New York and I don't have a place to live and I'm just so like homeless and I don't know. And so they're like, oh my gosh, what have we gotten into? <laughs> We so should they, just can't walk yeah. <laughs> and they speak to each other in Dutch for a few minutes. It's a guy and a girl, Kitchell and Valerie. And they speak to each other in Dutch saying, you know, do we want to trust this girl? Mm-hmm. Like, so eventually they say, we live in an artist collective and you're more than welcome to come and kick it with us for a few days until it's time for you to leave. So I said, sure. Yeah, what else? Yeah, <laughs> I didn't have any other options. Um, so I went back to the Artist Collective, and it's basically like an apartment building of 70 artists. Wow, that's a lot. All in their prime. Um, fashion designers, music producers, rappers, actors, visual artists, all in their 20s. Like a really, really cool place. Does this collective have a name? It's called Heisterfeld. It's in the southeast of Amsterdam, Amsterdam Zuid Oost. Okay. And... Um, yeah, they just live there in rent. They make money from their art and um, lots of parties, lots I of fun, bet. just lots of like water balloon fights, just <laughs> how you're supposed to live in your 20s, I uh-huh. think. So I was like, hmm, I'm never leaving. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is it. Yeah. <laughs> So I emailed my bosses in New York and I had someone like go in and sublet my apartment and I stayed. I just decided to stay. So they, when I, the day I moved in, they were having a meeting and they were talking about, we have all these unused spaces at the Artist Collective that we want to turn into a restaurant, um, a center for dinner and dialogue, a like artist and residence apartment, a store, and a performance space. And so, you know, the New Yorker that I am, I'm going to take over all of this. Tell me what to do. Where's my desk? Like, show me what I need to do. Uh And so I ended up, um, Kitchell, who I was staying with, uh, was in charge of the project on his end. So we made an exchange, and we actually caught an exchange, where I could live with him for free, and he would feed me. But I would support with this project and work on this project. Okay, so I I get that. Yeah, we made a cool arrangement, which worked for a short time. Right. Um, But eventually, I wrote my two best friends who came to Cincinnati last week, Brandon and Jeremy, and said, "Hey guys, quit your jobs (laughs) and move to Amsterdam. I got something for you." Yes, and they did. And they came, and we had our own apartment. We were broke. We were poor. Were you still in the Artist Collective at this yes. time? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I had to move in my own apartment because right. Kitchell was, couldn't get along. Okay. But, um, but, yeah, we moved into our own apartment, and we kind of started building Free People International in Amsterdam. And that really came from just sitting around and thinking, okay, we're doing all of this great all these great things. We're not really making any money. Right. How are we going to make money? Mm-hmm. We're hungry. <laughs> Hunger is um, a thing. Mm-hmm. So Jeremy said, "Hey, I heard this thing called branding. Let's just start doing branding for people. We're from New York. We, you know, we know what's we cool. Yeah. So we started branding. We just went out. And we had our first client who had a yoga studio. Now, how did you find this client? Jeremy just talking to people, <laughs> just talking. Oh, you know, and we're and we've always been 
like we'll say we know how to do it and then we'll figure out how to do it (laughs) it's like yeah we have a branding company and we're doing this and that and we found a few clients and made a just started making enough to eat you know we were still very poor but um there was a different sort of lifestyle there where much different from new york there was kind of like I have five cents, you have five cents, let's put it together and get a loaf of bread and feed everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, In New York, it's like, this is my bread. I'm not sharing it. That's America in general. Yeah, I'd rather throw it away than share it. Um, So yeah, we lived in Amsterdam on and off. I split kind of half a year in New York, half a year in Amsterdam. And what were you doing in New York at that point? I would go back... um, because technically we were there illegally, which I'll get into. So I would go back and work mostly for, um, I was working for, uh, if you know the musician Talib Kweli, his sure. mom, um, Dr. Brenda Green, amazing woman, um, works at Megar Evers University in Brooklyn. Oh. So she would hire me to do, to teach. I would teach like poetry, playwriting, and performance. Okay. I did artists' activist program. Um, so I kind of split the year going back okay. and forth hmm. until I was banned from Europe. How did they find you? <laughs> oh no, did they track you down? So I was coming back to Cincinnati for Christmas one year and I was stopped by immigration at the airport. Wow. And they said, you can't just live here. You can't just right. come back and forth and do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, they should have built a wall. Yeah, they should have. <laughs> I would have found a way because I was going. I was like, if I take a boat, right? Then See, they may not. I like that little mouse too. Exactly. So yeah, I um, I was banned, and I was banned for one year. Um, and I'd already given up my apartment in New York by this time, so I had no home in New York, no jobs in New York. So now Back I'm stuck in place. Cincinnati, where I start at my parents' house. Uh-huh. Um, so I, you know, I tried to do what I can, and I was very depressed. Yeah. Um, but I somehow I came across an opportunity with a program called the Do School, based in Germany, and they uh, bring twenty social entrepreneurs from around the world together to work on a project, and that and that project was called the Green Store, with H and M. So okay, mm-hmm. I. Um, they paid for everything. I got all the way to uh, Frankfurt, Germany. So excited, working with H&M. This yeah. is a big clothing brand. I'm one of 20 out of thousands of people. And I'm stopped in Frankfurt, and they said, no, you're still banned from Europe. And a year oh, from Europe at all? I was banned from all of Europe. No, oh, Greece, realize that. France, Germany. I thought it was just Spain. Oh, no. <laughs> Um, so I was detained in the airport for three days. Which airport was this? Frankfurt, Germany. So if you can imagine Mm. these tall, blonde, blue-eyed. Everybody there is. Aggressive German. Mm. (laughs) Like, you are in very big trouble. That's what they told me. Um, But it had been... Past the year. Yeah, I've been past a year. Probation. And if you look at my passport, it's this it's a big red stamp that says banned. Mm-hmm. But with the date for a year. Yeah. But they said when well, our computer system, you're banned for two years. Well, some said two, some said three. So I still don't know. Wow. Um 
Get it together, yeah. Europe. I know. I'm like, come <laughs> on, guys. And they were like, we can't do anything about it because it was imposed by the Dutch people. Um, it was this whole big thing of being detained. Like, I was imprisoned oh, for no. three days, no food. I maybe had water once, wow. used the bathroom maybe once. Um, before they took, it was an armed officer escorted me back onto the plane, back to the states and i had to give up the fellowship oh, completely how heartbreaking it was so i was depressed again and i'm back home in cincinnati again and still just kind of trying to figure out what my life was about because i feel like i'd given so much i just want to make the world a better place That's well, i have to go through all this yeah. <laughs> i have to go through all of this it's not worth it so I pulled myself up again, and I um, wrote the Dutch government and explained the situation and asked them to release the ban, and they did. Wow. But it was months later, oh, so well, it was too yeah. late for that. Yeah. But um, I was invited to go to Greece and participate in something called the World Public Forum, which was like leaders from all over the world getting together to discuss how to prevent the next world war, mm. which was really um, awesome and amazing. And I went back through Amsterdam and um, was staying with a friend when she got a delivery of a little coffee pot. And I watched her open it and she opened it up and there was a box inside of a box, inside of a bag, inside of another <laughs> bag with bubble wrap and oh. all this packaging and packaging something clicked. And I real I remembered, I saw something about the Do School doing something with the packaging let me look and apply again. So it was another fellowship with H&M again called the Packaging Challenge. Hmm. So I applied and I was like, these people would be crazy to accept me again after I wasted all of their money. Oh, like they oh, paid so for everything. The, well, it would have been the same organization. Yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. And they um, invited me to come. They, they accepted forgot. me. <laughs> I didn't forget. <laughs> They did not forget because they. I called them from the, from the airport, and you know it was a whole big mm. thing. But uh, yeah, they accepted me back, and so I worked with H and M. This would have been two years ago, um, designing sustainable packaging for them. Oh, nice! And so I started to think more about fashion and sustainability, and just the supply chain overall, mm. which was something most people don't typically think about. You, you don't know? see any of that. You, you see the final product. Go and, that's and it. pick it up at the store. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so much that goes into it, especially for such a huge global corporation. And I really um, still, and so at the same time we were working with H&M, we were also developing our own projects to implement in our home countries. So my, I was torn between doing a sustainable fashion brand and doing a social network. And hmm. so I decided to do a social network and I built a social network from scratch it's called freepeople.club. Mm-hmm. And the idea, I think the idea, like what I tell my students, is an idea bank. It's not ready for yeah. it's not ready yet, but it's still a good idea. But I wanted to connect um, creatives, social innovators, people doing really cool stuff around the world in a social network outside of Facebook. Hmm. Um, so it's more, you know, when you scroll your Facebook feed, you have your aunt, every cousin, yeah. uh-huh. posting cat videos. Like, what if we had a, like, intentional community, intentional online space? So I built that. Um, but there was, through my research, I was still researching 
sustainability and particularly our habits as millennials. So through my research, I found that there were three key reasons why we weren't shopping sustainably when it comes to fashion. And that was price. It's just too expensive. Mm -hmm. It's for the elite that can afford, you know, $800 pair of hemp pants. Right. Um, I love Stella McCartney, but that's not on, that's not in the budget right now. Yeah. And a lot of brands like Stella McCartney, there's a partnership ethical fashion initiative with the United Nations where they are going to foreign countries and having the the clothing produced, especially in Africa. Um, And they'll say, yeah, we're paying these women a fair wage, which they are. But a fair wage in Africa totally is totally different than a fair wage here. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're paying this woman five dollars for producing this garment that will then sell for ten million dollars on, on oh, the gosh. website. So uh, that even though they say it's ethical, it's not always ethical. Um, so price was one reason. Also accessibility. Mm-hmm. It's just not in the places where I shop. That's I can't true. go to the mall and, and buy um, sustainable fashion outside of like H and M's Conscious Collection. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, by the way, one of my favorite tops is from that collection. And yeah. it's surprisingly well made. I, lo- I think that collection is really well uh-huh, made. Yeah. I still, I know uh, people struggle with the idea of fast fashion and sustainability uh-huh. from working with H&M and doing, I still do quite a bit of like PR marketing for H&M. Um, they're trying. They're trying to be a good brand. <laughs> That's the best way I can say it. Yeah. They're working on it. And that collection is a good example of that for sure. Um, and then the third reason was style. It's just not cool. Mm-hmm. It's not what I want to wear. It doesn't match, match my personal style. So, and uh, from having my students do research on it, also they found a big part of it is just knowledge. I don't know what sustainable fashion is. Why should I care? Who cares? You know, what is it? What is it? What What should I even look Why? for? Like if I'm exactly. looking at a tag and I'm trying to figure out if something is made sure. ethically or mm-hmm. it's sustainable. I don't know what to yeah. look for. Yes, exactly. So that's kind of what went into the green store. I wanted to, um, although some pieces from other designers are more high-end and more expensive, I wanted my collection, Amsterdamage, to be affordable for fashion 